Hello and welcome to Mysteries and Mimosas. My name is Max Sterling and I'm here with my co-host and your wife. No, got that wrong, huh? Wow. <laughs> You're my wife and everybody's co-host. Yes. Aria. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello. It's one of those days, isn't it? It is. Okay, so uh, today's case is from 1996 out of Clarksville, Tennessee, and we're going to start with some trivia. These questions are brought to us today from brangle.com. I'm going to start off with the first question. In 1996, the first animal was successfully cloned. What animal was it? Uh, I remember this. This was Dolly the sheep. It was Dolly the sheep. Good job. I'm proud of you for that one. So I, I get full points on that. Yeah, one because p- actually I should get extra credit because I didn't say just the sh- a sheep. I actually gave you the name of the sheep. Mm. Yeah, I don't think so. But anyway. Mm. Okay, fine. Second question. For the first time ever, a computer defeated a reigning world chess champion. What was the computer's name? Do I have options? Because I yeah. have no idea. Yes. It's either A, Deep Blue, B, Black Ops, Commodore or Thor's hammer? I'll guess Commodore. Wrong. Mm. Sorry. What was it? You know, I'll give you the extra credit for Dolly, so I guess I can give you two points out of two. Okay. I like it. Yeah. But what was the computer's name? Deep Blue. Oh, okay. Question number three. Which of these events did not happen in 1996? Ready? I'm ready. The divorce of Charles and Diana, Prince and Princess of Wales. Nintendo 64 went on sale. A storm on Mount Everest killed five climbers. Or Czechoslovakia divided into two nations. Hmm. Well, I know that the prince and princess were divorced in 1996. And I also remember getting a Nintendo 64 that year for Christmas. I am torn between the storm and Czechoslovakia. But... I'm going to go with Czechoslovakia because I think that was before that time. Yeah. No, you're right. That happened in 1993. Hmm. Prince Charles and Princess Diana divorced in 96, in August of 96, actually. They were married for 15 years. Hmm. And you're right on the other two. Yay. So, I actually did really good on 100%. today's trivia. I'm going to yeah. say 90, 99.8. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. Good job. So what do we, what do we have for Mimosa today? Today's mimosa is a Tiffany mimosa, and it's called a Tiffany mimosa because of the color. It's that Tiffany blue color. So oh, I never put that yeah. together on. I see all the Tiffany jewelry and glasses yeah. and stuff. I didn't know that was why. It's because yeah. of the color, really? Well, the, that's their brand color, the Tiffany color. Oh. Yeah. I th- thought it was a brand. I didn't like, know it was a color. Well, I'm not saying it's, it's, the, what, it's what they use for oh. their color. It's on all of their packaging and everything. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to bump that up to 100% because I didn't know that. As a matter of fact, do me a favor. Get out your bucket list and cross off you taught me something. Okay. Wow. I, I crossed that off years ago. <laughs> I know. But no. Anyway, this one is it's really easy. It's just champagne and then blue carousel to make it that blue color. And then you can rim it with sugar. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. It's really pretty, right? It is really pretty. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, like I said, this is a case from 1996 out of Clarksville, Tennessee. Clarksville is the county seat of Montgomery County in Tennessee. It's grown quite a bit since this time. The closest census I could find was in 2000, and the population was 103,000 then. 
population now is about 166,000. It's the fifth largest city in Tennessee. It sits about 40 minutes northwest of Nashville, and it's filled with a bunch of historic attractions, outdoor activities. It's it's actually, just looking at the pictures, it's really, really beautiful. It's a pretty area out there anyway. I mean, I think Nashville's pretty. Oh, Nashville's area. awesome, yeah. yeah. On the afternoon of July 8th, 1996, around 1.30 p.m., nine-year-old Jackie Beard was at home with her mom, Jeannie. Jeannie had a scheduled doctor's appointment later that day, so Jackie asked her if she can go outside and pick some blackberries so that she could take them to the doctor's office with her. Jeannie gave Jackie permission to go outside, so Jackie changed into shorts, and off she went to pick blackberries. At about 1.55, so about a half an hour later, Jeannie was getting ready to leave for the doctor's appointment and called for Jackie to come inside, but she couldn't find Jackie anywhere. Scary feeling, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. You lose your kid in the store for like a second. You know, you turn around to grab something and turn back around and they're gone. That is that is the worst feeling. Yeah, like, I think it's happened to every parent yeah. at least once. Your heart just drops. Like, yeah, it's yeah. scary. So immediately after Jeannie noticed Jackie was missing, she began searching the area for Jackie on foot and with her car. During her search, her, uh, Jeannie's neighbor, his name was Mike Smith, he told Jeannie that he saw a car leaving the area, which matched the description of a car who we figured out, or the police figured out, belonged to William Glenn Rogers. Jeannie continued to search for Jackie, but Jackie was nowhere to be found. As it turns out, William had stopped by Jeannie's house asking Jeannie about a key he claimed to have lost. After a brief interaction, Jeannie turned William away. William was last seen walking down the road towards an abandoned trailer. Jackie was still at home with her mother when William was there asking about that lost key. In fact, this wasn't their first interaction. William had an interaction with Jeannie and her family on July 3rd, just five days earlier. Jackie was outside playing with her older brother, Jeremy, who was 12 at the time, and their cousin, Michael. The three kids were playing in a mud puddle, and they were approached by William. William told the kids that he was an undercover police officer and offered to take them swimming. He also offered to give them fireworks. Okay, weird. Is weird. Right? I mean, maybe as kids they didn't see that as weird. Some random guy just comes up and says, hey, I'm an undercover police officer. Let's go swimming and here's some fireworks. That's weird. Well, actually, I think Jackie did think that it was weird or at least... You know, something told her to go home and get her mom because she, you know, rather than accepting that offer, that's what she did. She went and got her mom. Oh, good. Well, at least she, you know, figured this, hey, this doesn't seem quite right. I probably need to go get an adult. Yeah, exactly. So when Jackie returned with Jeannie, William continued his claim to Jeannie to be an undercover officer, actually providing her with a fake name of Tommy Robertson. So that's interesting. So I'm sure he probably knew that Jackie had gone to get her mother, but he actually stuck around to talk to her. He didn't, like, take off or anything. He he stayed there. Yeah. So, I mean, what does that tell you about him? Well, well, I think 100% what it, what it tells me about him is he's, he, one, one, he's very forthright, very bold. He's approaching kids. Um, I'm guessing he had his eye on Jackie. Um you know, he wasn't afraid to approach her in front of her older brother and cousin. Um, even when mom came back, he was there to have an interaction with, with Jeannie because I think that he's grooming not only the kids, but he's also seeing how comfortable he can, you know, get with mom or if he could fool mom or, you know, just manipulate all of them. I completely agree. That's 
definitely grooming behavior. You're not you're not only trying to get the kids to trust you, but you're sticking around to have a conversation with mom. And I see that I see he did that for two reasons, or I think he did it for two reasons. One, he wanted those kids to see him talking to their mom to make them feel like it was a safe interaction. Like, oh, I mean, he's friends with my mom now. He's talking to her. He's not a stranger anymore. So I'm definitely going to feel more comfortable around him the next time he comes around. Oh, and in addition to that, he's telling them that he's an undercover police officer. Who do you trust more when you're a kid than cops? Right. And then on top of that, now mom is like, oh, this guy's an undercover police officer. And I mean, he didn't run off and avoid me. He stayed to talk to me. So, I mean, that's just trying to gain that trust in her as well. But you're right. He's just trying to manipulate that whole situation. And I guess as we go forward in this story, we'll see why. But that is like a textbook sex offender, in my opinion. Yeah, it definitely shows the signs of all of that. The building the trust, the promising things, the, hey, I'm going to give you stuff so so you'll like me. It it is definitely all grooming and, and manipulative behavior. So the first time, well, let me back up. So it seems William's behavior was also suspicious to police because it became a solid lead for them fairly early on in their investigation. Police completed a composite sketch which led members of the community reaching out to them to report the sketch resembled William. So I'm guessing they spoke with the neighbor who had who had seen William's car yeah, leaving I- the area and got maybe a description from him and then of course Jeannie, Jackie's mom, provided them with a description because she had interacted with him now on a couple of occasions. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, her daughter becomes missing. I'm sure she immediately, you know, suspected this weird guy that's saying he's a cop offering kids swimming fireworks. Well, not only that, but I mean, the past five days, they've had two interactions with him. And now all of a sudden, Jackie's gone missing. So... I'm sure her senses were heightened at that point. And she's like, hey, I'm going to mention this guy. He says he's an undercover cop. Do you guys know him? Is Does this name mean anything to you? And when they're like, uh, absolutely not. He doesn't work for us. What does he look like? And so then she probably provided that description. Yeah, exactly. So the first time that William was questioned by police was on July 11th, three days after Jackie was reported missing. William's wife was also interviewed, and she told police that William was home on the evening that Jackie, or came home on the evening that Jackie went missing. She also recalled bloodstains on William's shirt and mudstains on his pants. She actually described them, saying that it looked like Williams had, or somebody, had tried to wipe the stains off. His wife also remembered seeing small fingerprints, which appeared to be dragging down the passenger side window inside William's car. Initially, William, who was 34 years old at the time, denied seeing Jackie the day that she was reported missing. But after police continued their interview, William claimed to hit Jackie by accident with his car. William also said that after he hit Jackie with his car, he threw her body off of a bridge into the Cumberland River. So now he's saying, oh yeah, wait, I did have contact with her, but, and and she, you know, she is dead, but it was all an accident. Right, and through the interview... Um, you know, he denied ever having Jackie inside his car, but when police asked William about those fingerprints, um, he ended up claiming that, okay, yeah, Jackie sat briefly in my car and we just talked. Interesting. Right. Okay. What business does a 34 year old man have sitting in a car with a nine year old talking about what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not uncommon for 
you know, especially, you know, these kinds of offenders to, to make up those excuses and rationalize that in their brain that, yeah, this makes sense that I'm going to just have a conversation with a child in my car. That, that doesn't, that doesn't pass the common sense test to the rest of us. Right. Yeah. We all can recognize that behavior immediately as suspicious, but you're right. He tried to rationalize that. Right. Because if you think about it and he's saying, oh, I was just having a conversation with her in my car. We were just talking. That makes sense to him at the time because he's trying to give an explanation for his actions. But when you when you sit back and you think about it as a parent, if your nine-year-old was in a car with a 34-year-old man just talking and that's what they told you, you'd be furious. It, well, I mean, if it's a stranger like that, absolutely. Somebody that you literally met five days ago and he's already like giving you some some red flags uh, with right. his behavior, right? You're going to, yeah, you're definitely going to question that. It's not like, you know, he was somebody that was regularly in her life. Like and, grandma, grandpa. Yeah, like a relative or somebody that takes her back and forth to school or anything like that. There's no valid reason for her to be sitting in his car right. with him. Yeah, alone. So throughout throughout the police interview, though, William denied ever sexually abusing Jackie. But And as as far as I could tell, to this day, he's still... Uh, maintains that he never did do anything sexual with Jackie. But on November 8th of 1996, Jackie's remains were found by two deer hunters about 48 miles away from her home in the wooded area of land between the lakes. So, okay. So that just throws, you know, his story, you know, out of, I mean, it, it, the unreliability, I guess, of his story. He said that he dropped, he dumped her off a bridge in the Correct. area, but yet four months later, she's found 48 miles away in a wooded area. Well, yeah, I'm sure he was never expecting her remains right. to be found. Right. So, uh, so yeah, the, it's found in the wooded area of Land Between the Lakes, and Land Between the Lakes is a national recreation area. Um, it's about 170,000 acres of forest land and open space. It sits on the peninsula, like this big giant peninsula between Kentucky and Barkley Lakes in both Kentucky and Tennessee. Oh, wow. So it actually crosses over the state it, line? Yeah, it does. It's a popular destination for hunters. Obviously, the, the deer hunters found Jackie's remains. Um, it's popular for fishing, camping, all those fun stuff that we like to do outdoors. Mm -hmm. It's important to mention that when William's wife was interviewed, she claimed to have been at Land Between the Lakes with William days prior to Jackie's disappearance. She also remembered during their car ride home, William told her about a remote area that he had found and quoted William as saying, you could bury a body back here and nobody would ever find it. Wow. That, that's creepy. It is creepy. <laughs> Especially, you know, when you think, you know, I'm, I'm sure at the time she's just like, oh, okay, you know, but now, now she's being questioned and she's like, oh, wow, that puts a whole new twist on that quote yeah it does tw put a whole new twist on that quote because now you know afterwards when when everything comes to light and she thinks back she can really understand how creepy that was mm -hmm. jackie's shoes shirt and shorts were found near her remains her shirt was found to be inside out and lab tests revealed the presence of sperm on the inside crotch area of her shorts but the problem was they were unable to develop a dna profile with the sample that they found i'm guessing that you know, she was found in November. She went missing in July. That's a long time for, for anything to be out in the in the elements. 
there's definitely some, you know, degradation of the DNA, not to mention, you know, they, there's probably animals that scavenged around in there and, and moved part of the remains. So does that make sense that they wouldn't, there wouldn't be enough left to test? And, you know, in that amount of time with the changing of the season and everything, there probably was very little left uh, of the remains in order to get any DNA samples or anything, especially in 96. Yeah, that makes sense. So William was arrested. He was charged and convicted of nine counts, including one count of first degree premeditated murder. You know, I think that I don't know, you know, everything about the court transcripts or, or the filing or anything, but I think that just filing cases, the, the the statement that he made to his wife saying you could bury a body back here and nobody would ever find it, in in conjunction with his behavior of grooming and stalking Jackie, that's probably where they came up with the premeditation. That's yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that's kind of that's a hard thing to prove, and especially in a case like this where he says, "Yes, I am responsible for her death, but it was an accident." You know, I mean. Well, yeah, and then you know, police are definitely you know able to put holes in his story rather quickly because yeah, he wasn't, you know, she wasn't found anywhere near a, a water source. I mean, maybe she was. I mean, you can't be anywhere really in the United States without being somewhere near a water source. Yeah, especially on a peninsula wooded area. Right. Um, but she, you know, that she was never dumped over a bridge like he claimed. Right. He was also charged and convicted of two counts of first degree felony murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, two counts of rape of a child and two counts of criminal impersonation. And so those criminal impersonation charges, do you think they stem from him saying that he was an undercover police officer to both the kids and but, then to Jeannie? Yeah, that's what I think. Oh. So after after a jury trial, he was found guilty of those charges. Um, at sentencing, they provided mitigating and aggravating uh, arguments. William's most mitigating argument was about a long history of childhood abuse and neglect. William claims that he was abused by his stepfather. He said that his stepfather would beat him. He even recounted one time where his stepfather beat him with a baseball bat. Uh, he said that his stepfather would rub William's face in urine and feces whenever William would wet the bed. And when William tried to run away, uh, his stepfather and mother would tie him to the bed. He also claimed that they would deprive him of food, and he claimed that he was sexually abused by several adults as a child. Well, not that it's an excuse or that it ever makes it okay, but very oftentimes people that are raised in those environments and grow up that way, that are physically and sexually abused, carry on that same behavior as adults to children. Um, it's that old saying, hurt people hurt people. And it's sad, but it is it is a fact. And those things do contribute to that type of behavior. Again, not that it makes it okay or that it's an excuse. Right. And and it doesn't happen every time or all the time. I mean, people heal. People understand, you know, what, what they went through when they were sexually abused as children. And, and people move on from that. And, they, you know, a lot of people advocate to help kids um, because of their, you know, experiences as, as an abused child. But there's a lot of times when I've arrested sex offenders and you look into their history and they, they'll either tell you or there's documented proof of them being victimized themselves. And I know that, you know, and don't quote me on, you know, the psychology behind this. I just know through through training and everything that I've received. Sometimes when victims of sexual abuse uh, grow up, they 
then abuse another child. And even though they know what they went through as a child, they still do it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be solely sexually motivated. It, it becomes a power and control issue where they were in that position as a victim. And now they want to switch the role to be in charge. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's what it is. They just they're tired of being that victim. And so now they're going to take this opportunity to be the one that's in control of the situation. Another mitigating argument was um, related to the abuse, claiming that uh, William had suffered PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder because of the abuse that he, you know, encountered when he was a child. But the jury concluded the aggravating circumstances outweighed, outweighed the mitigating circumstances. The jury considered William's prior felony convictions, and I guess he had at least one of those felony convictions as a violent offense. They considered Jackie's age was under 12 when she was killed and William was over 18. They also considered that William killed Jackie to avoid, interfere, or prevent his arrest. And they also considered William knowingly killed Jackie while he played a substantial role in committing or attempting to commit a rape or kidnapping. So a jury found William guilty, and he was sentenced to death for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Jackie Beard, but he has since won an appeal to his death sentence. William had filed a bunch of appeals, but he particularly filed this one um, appeal saying that he had ineffective counsel, and he claimed at trial the counsel failed to investigate and challenge the sperm found in the crotch of Jackie's shorts. Because remember, they didn't have enough uh, to, to say that the DNA profile matched him. The sentence of the death penalty has since been overturned in the case because of his appeal on that effective, ineffective counsel. So I, I just want to take a second here to, you know, get your opinion on, you know, the victim side of this. I mean, Jackie's mom first experienced a missing child for four months. She then had to deal with the murder of her child. You know, understanding coming to coming to grips with, you know, that her her child was murdered, not knowing what happened to her, and then experienced a trial and might have felt some sort of justice knowing that, you know, Jackie's killer got the death penalty. And now, you know, fast forward. Well, I mean, the case happened in 1996, but he wasn't convicted until 2000. So she already experienced, you know, years of going through the judicial court process, which I'm sure was a grueling for her and her entire family. And so from 2000 to now, that's 13 years later that she's now finding out that, you know, his case, his, his death penalty has been overturned and there might be the possibility of a new trial. That is devastating, I'm sure. It's an emotional roller coaster I don't think any human is ever prepared to take. No, absolutely not, especially as a parent, I think. I mean, that's that's got to be not only you you know, you lost your child, but you lost her in such a harsh, violent, devastating way, and you really don't have all the answers because he's still claiming innocence on these charges, correct? Yeah, he well, at least on the sex assault, for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's he's never he's never admitted guilt for purposely going and taking Jackie and murdering her. He stands behind the claim that it was just an accident. So not only as a parent is she experiencing the loss of her daughter, 
she now has to go through this whole court process and never really know the full truth of what happened to her. And so that in and of itself is, is, is hard, you know, but then all these years later, finding out that, oh, well, now, now a judge has overturned the death penalty conviction. And, you know, there might be this possibility in the future of a new trial. And, and I don't, I don't know how anybody gets through that, you know? Right. And, and his appeal just, you know, was granted um, by the federal appeals court last year, 2022. Okay. So pretty recent then still. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, J- Jackie's mom went through that whole period of time feeling some sort of peace, I'm guessing. I mean, no, not a full amount of peace, yeah. but just knowing that the justice system worked and now she right. has to relive it all again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you'll ever feel peace. I guess, I don't know. I, I couldn't speak on that because I don't know her. And this is a very private thing. You know, grief is very different for everyone. And so I don't know where she's at in that journey, but I can imagine if I were in that situation, I, I wouldn't feel peace ever, but you're right. She at least felt like there was a little bit of justice with that conviction. And now she has, yeah. And she has to fear the unknown. Well, what, what more is going to happen? You know, this has already happened. The death penalty has been overturned. What else can I expect in the future going forward? Right. And conversely, not not to take away anything from that, but, you know, obviously I want to be fair and everything in, in what I say. And I think that, it, that obviously somewhere they got, got it right in, there were failures, right? Because they, they made a conviction on a sex assault when they didn't have any DNA linking a sex assault to, you know, William. I think that we can all read between the lines and we can all, you know, the, I think that the circumstantial evidence at least is overwhelming to say that that is exactly what happened. Um, but, but then again, you know, the sperm was never tied to him specifically. Sure. I can see, I'm actually, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that he was found guilty on that charge. I, I know there's tons of circumstantial evidence but there was actually never any direct link for that sex assault because there was such a small amount of sperm found. They, they couldn't test it and guarantee that it was his. They actually couldn't guarantee that that didn't happen when her shorts were laundered with another male in her household because that can happen. Minute traces of sperm when you launder clothes together, can actually be transferred from one to the other in that process. So, I mean, there are other possibilities. And I don't know if maybe at that time they didn't know that because, you know, DNA was still kind of new. I I don't know. Uh, You're absolutely right. I have no idea where DNA testing was at in 1996, the science behind it. I know it's much different now. In no way am I saying that William is innocent. I think he is 100% guilty of everything that he was found guilty of initially. Oh, of course. I, I do, too. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, I can see where that would be and, maybe questionable. And why the federal court of appeals would uh, overturn that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. So interestingly enough, in 1996, there were two other mysterious cases involving two other little girls in the same area. 
three-year-old Lucy Meadows of Clarksville, Tennessee, was reported missing and was never found. And seven-year-old Morgan Violi of Bowling Green, Kentucky, was abducted in broad daylight and was later found murdered in White House, Tennessee. This is all kind of in the same area. Wow. Geographically. But they don't think that any of them are connected? or. I think they might have considered it for a brief you know, amount of time, but no, they don't think that they're connected now. Those are two both very interesting cases, so stay tuned because we do have something in the works for both Lucy and Morgan. But for now, I want to remember Jackie Beard, so please join us, raise your glasses, and toast to the life of Jackie and everything that her family has gone through. Cheers. Cheers. If you like today's episode, please visit us at mysteriesandmimosas.net. There you'll find our source material, additional information about this episode, and you can contact us to give us episode and or mimosa recipe suggestions. And don't forget, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Mysteries and Mimosas Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening.